very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com I'm your host Mel Fambergas and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again and if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here welcome home to listen to tonight's full interview and all of our episodes hundreds of them ranging from 2008 you know what to do by now just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You'll receive your login immediately. And if you want to unlock your full potential, because it's your life and you should take control, visit SanitasRadio.com. Take a listen. You won't be disappointed. Tonight's guest has had an interesting life. His interest in the paranormal began when he was 14 years old. I was strictly limited to the subject of flying saucers. However, that interest gradually expanded via a very circuitous route to include spirituality and ancient wisdom traditions. His passion for mathematics, science, and the paranormal inspired him to research topics involving the afterlife, various religious and existential philosophies, cutting-edge physics, and the nature of reality. A diagnosis of prostate cancer in December of 2003, intensified his interest in these topics and spurred him to undergo hypnotic regression as a healing modality and also to explore past lives and the afterlife. His research and personal exploration resulted in the discovery of contemporary models of the afterlife and the nature of reality which offer surprisingly detailed and specific answers to what he calls the great questions of existence. Where do we go after we die? Where do we come from before we are born? And why are we here? Furthermore, he discovered that knowledge about the afterlife can result in a profound personal transformation that has the potential to greatly enrich and enhance one's life experience. Wanting very much to share this information with others, he decided to write a book in which he could present and discuss these amazing discoveries as well as provide a practical methodology to applying them. And he's here with us tonight to share more. I'd like to welcome John T. Manella, author of the book titled The Afterlife and the True Nature of Reality, The Quest for Answers to the Great Questions of Existence. And John's website is reality-revealed.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Westchester, New York, I would like to welcome John T. Manella to Veritas. Hello, John, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? 
Hi, Mel. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure and an honor. Oh, it's my pleasure. And as I was telling you offline, I, I really enjoy all these interviews about the afterlife. Just because I'm always looking for where we come from, where we're going, and anybody that goes out there to scratch the surface, I'm very interested in speaking with. But at the beginning of, of your book, you deconstruct the book title. Uh, why did you combine both phrases, the, the afterlife and the true nature of reality? I did that because uh, I, I was exploring these topics for many, many years uh, independently, and it occurred to me fairly recently that they were interconnected. Uh, in a way that I never foresaw. And uh, once I once I saw that connection and thought about it more and development more, I realized it was pretty profound. And uh, that's actually one of the reasons why I decided to write the book, because uh, I realized that the afterlife topic was not just a kind of an independent uh, topic of interest, but that it had practical ramifications with our earthly lives and our, and our real lives and reality now. What was your main motivation for writing this book? My main motivation was, um, well, let me back up a little. I'm, I'm, I'm a conspiracy theorist, and I'm happy to say that. I'm not ashamed of that label. Uh, uh, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with it, and I've been that no. way for a long, for a long time. And, uh, we, we are too, but we just changed the label because, as you know, ever since the Kennedy assassination, that, that term conspiracy theorist has been demonized. So we call ourselves parapolitical researchers. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a nice title. <laughs> I know it, it's taken on a, a stigma, but, uh, yes. uh, but anyway, I've been that way for a long time and I still am. And, uh, I, I started to realize that, uh, it, uh, looking for that information or, or, uh, you know, once your eyes are open and once you realize the truth of the way our uh, society and our government and so forth works, uh, that, that information, at least for me, and I think it's true for a lot of other people, it becomes addictive almost. And I would find myself, you know, continually reading and watching, uh, over and over and over again. And a lot of it was stuff I, I knew by heart because I've just been exposed to it for so long. And, uh, I also found that it was, it, it was depressing me because the, you know, the, there didn't seem to be much real hope. Um, I, I don't believe in violent revolution. I agree with uh, David Icke, you know, who says you, you, you've become the people you're trying to, uh, you know, get rid of if you do that. And I honestly don't think we can change the system from within because I think it's, it's fixed, and uh, you know they have a lock on it, and there's not much we can do. So with those two options pretty much neutralized, it seemed hopeless to me. And that hopelessness combined with the continued exposure to the material just become very depressing. I already was familiar with things like um, the secret, the law of uh, attraction and all that. And it started to occur to me, gee, I'm, you know, I'm attracting all this negative uh, stuff to me. Uh, I'm interested in it, you know, but, but it, it became, uh, like I said, it becomes addictive. I heard someone recently refer to it as fear porn. And I think that's a good, yes. a good, a good label. And, uh, I wanted to write a book for a long time, and uh, actually, I wanted to write fiction. Um, I had a fiction book that I'd been writing in my mind for a good 12 years, and when I sat down to write that fiction book, a little voice in my head said, service to others before service to self. You have to write a book that's going to be practically helpful to people before you engage in any kind of entertainment, and that made sense to me, and, and I, so I put aside the novel, and I, I went with this idea. And uh, I, when I started, I really wasn't sure where I was going to go. And, and then I said, you know, I want to write something that offers realistic, practical hope 
for us uh, to get out of the, the morass we're in in this world now. In other words, something to counter all the conspiracy stuff, which I believe is true. I believe it 100%. Uh, but, but like I said, I saw no solutions really being offered by anybody. You know, it was, it, nothing practical or real. And uh, I felt that uh, what the afterlife teaches us and what we can and the, the uh, personal transformations we can undergo by being exposed to that material, as, as I wrote in the book, I'm sure you read, uh, is one way out of this for us. Uh, another way is the uh, dimensional shift, which I'm sure we'll get to uh, in, in the course of our conversation, uh, Dolores Cannon's New Earth Theory. Mm-hmm. And I started to see that there were these, uh, as I say, you know, practical, realistic uh, ways out of this. And, and they were very positive. I mean, they're on a spiritual level. And as I also say in the book, uh, you know, the, the, I believe the causes of the problems in this world ultimately are due to uh, uh, degraded spirituality, at least on the part of the people in power who've created this this terrible world we live in. And it only seems logical that the solution to that problem should occur on a spiritual level as well. And uh, like I said, the more I thought about this, the more I connected the what I knew about the spirit realm with the uh, the new nature of reality model. I said, th- this is this is a positive, life-affirming uh, potential solution to the problems we face. And then I went about, you know, just trying to organize it and document it. And you and I both, correct me if I'm wrong, were raised Roman Catholics. We'll, we'll talk about that and why we were a little bit disenchanted with, with, <laughs> with, with some of the things we couldn't find and the, the illogical aspects of the heaven and hell and all that. And, you know, I, I saw a saying the other day, what, what, what was it? I'm just trying to think what it was. Um, the errors of the past do not define me. They just guide me. And it's almost like you always have a second chance to, to, to make things better. But when it comes to, to, to religion, sometimes it's so black and white that it seems unfair sometimes. But we'll discuss that later. But John, as you know, we have discussed the, the topic of the afterlife many times on this program. But how do we know for certain that there is... An afterlife. You say there actually is an afterlife, and we actually know something concrete and specific about the afterlife. Now, that's a an extraordinary claim. So, tell us more. Yes, it is an extraordinary claim, and actually, uh, the model of the afterlife that I present in the book is is a modern secular model. It's not religious, and it primarily comes from the work of uh, Michael Newton. Uh, and we can get into the sure. details of his model later, but uh, but there are many other researchers who've, who've uh, you know delved into this and written books about it, and they their their findings correspond with his, so they support his findings. Uh, and I was originally going to dive right into the the Newton model or what I call the Newton model, and then it hit me that uh, before I do that, I have to address what you just brought up. You know, uh, you know his model in a sense, I, the the research he's done. And the data he's uh, uncovered, I think, serves as proof for his model to a certain extent. But I wanted independent proof for that. And the way I went about it was uh, really, uh, I think, threefold. Uh, I said the pillars of the Newton model are um, the existence of an afterlife realm, the existence of a human soul, and reincarnation. Those, the, the entire model rests upon those three pillars. So I said, is there any way I could independently uh, provide evidence that if it doesn't prove their existence, at least uh, makes a powerful case for that? And I went about it as follows. Uh, To prove that the afterlife exists and the soul exists, uh, I discussed in detail the near-death experience. There's a tremendous amount of data available on that because that's been 
that's been around since the mid seventies at least, and much much formal, uh, sophisticated research has been done. Many many books have been written uh, with involvement by medical doctors and scientists and so forth, and it's consistent. Everything these people find is consistent. So you're talking about thousands upon thousands of people undergoing these NDEs and coming up with the same uh, stories, the same information, the same experiences. So I felt that was very powerful evidence. And what we see in the NDE. Uh, is the fact that uh, when people have a near-death experience, uh, either as a result of an accident or a medical mishap, uh, they cross over into another realm. There's the, the familiar tunnel of light, or, uh, excuse me, dark tunnel. They travel to light, and then they end up in a place that seems to be the spirit realm. And in fact, they usually encounter either deceased relatives or um, ethereal beings that are like spirit guides. And... Uh, it, it, Again, the, the, the experience is so real to them, uh, they often describe it as being more real than the life experience on Earth. That's a common description. And it's so consistent from person to person to person that I think it makes a powerful case for the existence of an afterlife. And uh, what happens to them at the moment of the near-death experience initially is they have an out-of-body experience. Something leaves their physical body and rises above it, and they're able to uh, experience their surroundings from that essence, which appears to be a soul or a spirit. They actually see their physical body lying on the bed or the hospital gurney or whatever it is, and uh, they can float around and they, uh, they see things and hear things. And uh, they have this very ethereal, soul-like experience. And naturally, when they cross over to the other side, they're in that form, and the beings that they encounter are in that form as well. Uh, and again, I, I don't know how far you want to go into it, but the, the evidence for the near-death experience is really, really powerful. And uh, I, I think that makes a very powerful case for the existence of a soul in the afterlife. Um, and some of the questions that I'm going to be asking, I'm going to sound like I'm a, a, a skeptic. I am. I, I'm an open-minded skeptic, so we just have to be <laughs> – we can't be too gullible. And I'm, by reading right. your book, you are one of those two. You're a skeptic with an open mind. And I'm glad you discussed the religious and scientific aspects of the afterlife, or lack thereof for the latter. Yes. You say, quote, religious adherents are asked to accept the unsubstantiated claims regarding the afterlife on faith alone. Mainstream science, on the other hand, does not acknowledge the existence of an afterlife at all, nor does it acknowledge its necessary precursor, the soul, unquote. Please comment on this. Yes, I'd like to comment on that first part about religion uh, asking their adherents to accept it on faith. I didn't put this in the book because it occurred to me after I wrote the book, but I, I noticed a tremendous irony about that. As you said, I was brought up Catholic like you, so my familiarity is, is primarily with the Catholic religion. And even mm -hmm. though I abandoned it, I you know I, I was with it for a while. Uh, and in the Catholic religion, and I think this is true uh, in Protestantism and, and perhaps Judaism as well, uh, Satan who is the primary adversary, uh, is often described as the prince of lies and the great deceiver. I mean, that, that's, he's a very powerful being, but those seem to be, that seems to be his primary power, that he deceives people and he lies. Now, it seems to me that if, as a, a, a religious um, organization, if your primary adversary is known for being an expert liar, the very last thing you're going to ask your adherents to do is accept anything on faith. You're going to demand proof. Doesn't that make sense? Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're a you know if you're a captain in the army and someone rides into the base and gives you a message and it says, uh, you know, uh, this is from the commanding general. You're supposed to throw down your arms and surrender immediately. 
uh, and you have no proof that it came from your commanding general, are you going to accept that? No. You know, you expect your enemy to lie and deceive you. And they say that he's the great deceiver. And yet this is their primary, uh, you know, the basis of their belief. I've had many religious people who disagree with me, uh, you know, fervently about my thoughts of the afterlife uh, defend their position, the religious position. And when I point out that there's no proof, they're very proud to say that they accept it on faith. I mean, there's no shame with that. That's, that's something they feel extremely proud about that. You know, we, we take this on faith alone. We don't require proof. And again, I have to say, if the, if the guy you're fighting against is the great liar, then that's not the way to approach this. Uh, and, and it's also unscientific. And, and while I'm a very spiritual person, I also, I have a lot of faith in science or at least the scientific method. And, uh, I do want some type of proof. And I do say in my book that I believe the only things that are conclusively provable are mathematical things. Everything else is, has a degree of truth to it. And it depends upon the quality of the evidence you produce and the, uh, amount of evidence. Uh, but the more evidence and the higher the quality, the more likely the thing is true. So I'd like to see as much evidence and as much high quality evidence as I could for any conjecture that anybody presents to me. And so the religious thing, as you said, even when I was a very young child, before I had any kind of sophisticated thinking, it just didn't fit with me. I just, I just found it, you know, hard to swallow. And then, as you said, as I pointed out in the book, that this the science says there is no soul, there is no afterlife. They present no proof for their position at all. So in, very, in a very real sense, they're much like the religious side of it, who, who they are always at odds with. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, our two uh, self-appointed uh, arbiters of truth in our society, religion and science, in this area at least, uh, offer no proof at all for their positions. And when I first came across Michael Newton's uh, first two books, Journey of Souls and Destiny of Souls, uh, I realized he had a very coherent, rational, structured model with loads of evidence to support it. Again, people consistently telling the same thing and describing the same experiences. And I saw this was just so, a, so much more robust and um, powerful uh, model for the afterlife compared to the religious model or for the complete lack of an afterlife that science uh, claims. And it's interesting that you're talking about science and religion because I think there are two religions. There is religion and there is science. Because I think science lately is be becoming or behaving like religion, very dogmatic. And even if they cannot explain something, they say, well, that does not exist, period. And we know with studying consciousness and so on that they have a lot to learn. But I like quotes, John, and you include a lot of quotes, especially one of my favorite people, Terrence McKenna. Yes. You, you have this quote, and it says, quote, entertain all possibilities but never commit to belief. Belief always being seen as a kind of trap, because if you believe something, you are forever precluded from believing its opposite, unquote. And I live by the following motto, John, you probably know this, I would rather have a mind open by wonder than one closed by belief. So why is it, John, that most people want you to believe without questioning? Isn't, isn't this perpetuating the ignorance to accept everything at face value. Yes, I agree 100%. And uh, I think there, there are several reasons. One reason is I think laziness. It's just so much easier for someone to tell you what to believe, and then you accept that, and you just point at that. You don't have to do any thinking. You don't have to do any research. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people uh, fall into that trap strictly from laziness. Uh, I mean, if, if you question anybody on anything, whether it's what we're talking about now, the afterlife, or you know, conspiracy things like 9-11, uh, 
you know, uh, the, the people who have the alternative view rarely offer any supporting evidence at all. I mean, they have nothing to support their position. They've just adopted a position that they've heard somebody else say, and that's it. That their hands now they you know they wash their hands of it because they don't want to get involved with that. They're busy uh, involved in other things. I, I heard you once uh, you know mention uh, one of your guests. Uh, Oh, oh, no, you asked your guest if he was familiar with the Kardashians, and he said he didn't watch TV. And you said something along the lines of uh, their, their purpose is to lower the IQ of everybody who watches them. Yeah. And, and I agree with that. <laughs> and, and there are many other things on television that are like that as well. It's and, mental atrophy, what I call yes, it. Yes, it is. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. I was so happy to see uh, there was a, a news anchor. I don't know which channel of TV, but I saw that he just apparently, of course, as you know, everybody reads from a script. These days, news are not made as they used to be in the old days. So this person, you know, all of a sudden sees Kardashians written on the script. And he basically stood up, took off his microphone. And he says, I'm done. I'm not going to discuss it any anymore. And he left the studio. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh, so I'm wow. glad people are, are, are waking up to the fact that if it's, if it's not, it, it is so obvious. And I don't mean to digress. I'm just making a, a statement here <laughs> that when you turn on the TV after 60 seconds, you are number one in fear. And number two, your IQ probably goes down a couple of digits. <laughs> but, you know, I, I never get tired of asking the primordial questions or the great questions of existence, as you call them. Right. Let's explore the following questions, which you, you, you thought were unanswerable phil philosophical mysteries. But as you grew older, you say they are tangible and fathomable. And I'm referring to where do we come from before we are born? Where do we go after we die? Why are we here? What is the true nature of the reality in which we exist? Where are we headed? Can we dissect all these uh, or dissect all these questions, John? Sure. sure. Uh, the first two go together because they're answered by the Newton model of the afterlife. Uh, where we come from, where we go after we die and where we come from before we're born is the same place. It's the spirit realm or the afterlife. And uh, according to Newton's model, uh, you know, we, 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 we leave the afterlife as souls. Uh, we're born, in, we, we enter a fetus, we're born into this world and, um, we're face, we face certain challenges and how we react to those challenges, uh, is judged against a set of moral precepts. And then, uh, when we die, we return to the spirit realm and we go through a lengthy process of analyzing how we lived our life, the decisions we made, how we affected people, both good and bad. And, uh, our, our goal is to uh, achieve spiritual perfection, to, to filter out or wash away all the negative uh, attributes and uh, develop all the positive ones. And that's what all the incarnations are about. And we go through this cycle of reincarnation over and over again. It's a so, circle? It is a circle, yes. Uh, uh, hopefully a circle that we break away from at some point. Uh, so it's it's not a never-ending circle. The the, the uh, ideal goal is that at some point we will eliminate all of the negative tendencies. We look, we will have learned all our lessons well and successfully, and at that point we can leave the reincarnation cycle. Uh, and I guess I just I should point out here uh, that uh, any any person who is a human being on Earth is in that reincarnation cycle. So uh, since Newton gets his information by hypnotizing people, he's limited to souls who are still in the reincarnation cycle. What happens to souls uh, after they graduate from that is really not known because he doesn't have access to those souls because they don't come back to Earth anymore. So actually, even, even though Newton's model is very detailed, we only know uh, – we only have information about one aspect of the spirit realm. Uh, once people get beyond, or excuse me, once souls get beyond that, 
we really don't know what happens to them. There are some hints in his book because uh, souls are at different levels of advancement. And the more advanced souls, I guess they're, they're very close to leaving. So they have, uh, they have some indication of what's in store for them. But, but it's just, you just get a, a brief glimpse. And I, I don't think the souls themselves know. It's analogous. I, but, but, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you, but it, you know, I'm thinking of the late Dolores Cannon, uh, mm. uh, so, so many other researchers out there who have hypnotized thousands of, 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 of people. And I'm thinking if – well, actually, it's a question for you mostly. If there are past lives and this – let's call it a reality for sake of argument. If we have past lives, couldn't we determine – let's say we have – Several, several people who have been regressed, and we look at several of their lives. Can we more or less pinpoint where they're heading in their next life? Yes, I think so. Uh, and I think that's one of the benefits we can derive from knowledge about this information. Uh, there's a quote from the Buddha in my book where he says, uh, do you want to know what your past lives were like? Look at your life now. Right. Do you want to know what your future lives are going to be like? Look at your life now. Everything is interdependent. It has to do with the way you're behaving. So, for example, if I was, if I did horrible things in a previous life, uh, then there are going to be certain aspects of my current life that were specifically designed uh, for me to deal with that issue. So, for example, if I was um, a bully in a past life, and I was, let's say, I was a big, strong guy, and I beat up people and you know uh, bullied them, uh, there's a good chance in my current life I would be, you know, a small, thin, uh, you know, meek guy. And that I would be on the receiving end of bullying, not as punishment. It is a very important aspect of this thing is that there's no punishment involved with this. It's to a experience learning experience, it, to learn. right? And, and to, right, and learn it firsthand. I mean, there's no better teacher than being on the receiving end of something. Uh, you know, it's it's much more powerful than learning it in a theoretical way. Uh, and then, depending how I conduct this life, if I'm a nice person and I'm, I treat people with respect and kindness then odds are my next life is going to be a pleasant life. On the other hand, if there's some area where I have problems again, I can expect that in my next life there are going to be circumstances and conditions that were put in place uh, for me to address that in some way. And the more you, you learn about this, the more you can do exactly what you said. You can predict uh, you know, wh where, where you'll go. And if I could just throw one more thing in with that, I, I'm, I guess I'm jumping ahead in a way, but, but this is a good place sure. to put it in. Uh, I found my own personal experience, and I know others have as well, uh, that once I really got into this information about the afterlife and Newton's model and so forth, uh, I started to, without planning to, it just kind of happened, it evolved in me, I started to evaluate what I was going to say or what I was going to do in any situation uh, what I, through what I call a LBL filter. LBL mean li means life between lives, and that's what Newton calls the spirit realm. And I started to filter everything through that because uh, when you when you go over to the other side, one of the key uh, experiences you have is you go before what is called the Council of Elders, and they review with you how you conducted yourself in your previous life. It's not a tribunal. They don't judge you. They don't yell at you. Uh, they're wise beings, and they just offer you advice and the benefit of their wisdom. Uh, but the key thing in that is that uh, when you go through that experience – there's, there's no way for you to hide from the truth of it. You, you experience firsthand the effect you had on other people in a very empathic way. 
And uh, if you did something wrong, you're hurt by it, and you wind up judging yourself because the pain is really, really severe. It's not like here where we can, you know, come up with justifications and so forth. There's no, there's no nonsense over there. It's all true. It's all honest, and it's all real. And that's a very powerful experience for people, and they're often uh, very intimidated or very ashamed when they do that because all of us have done bad things. And it's, you know, when you really have to face it for what it is in that setting. It's it's a very it's very sad. I mean, you, you know, you you kind of you're hard on yourself about it. And you feel really bad about the things you did. Once I found that once we become aware that we're going to face that situation at some point after we die, uh, you start to rearrange your activities and what you say and what you do and even what you think in this life with that in mind. In other words, before I say or do something, I say to myself, you know, do I want to go before my council of elders, having reacted in such a such way? And I believe in that thing wholeheartedly. And I know what people, what souls experience when they face that. And I start to say to myself, no, I don't want to, you know, I want to, I want to stand before them proud and say, look, I've done all these good things. You know, I didn't yell at that person. I didn't insult them. I didn't hit somebody. I didn't steal. I didn't lie. And, uh, like I said, this evolved on its own. And I saw a dramatic transformation in me and in the kind of person I am, all for the positive, strictly as a result of that. And again, that goes back to a question we asked before, why I wrote the book. I, that was one of the main, main reasons I wrote the book. I want people to realize that if you acquaint yourself with this material and this literature, it gives you a mechanism, an easy, a very easy mechanism to uh, dramatically change yourself for the better. And uh, I, I think that's a really important aspect of the whole uh, area of research. And the last two questions we'll explore later. What is the true nature of the reality in which we exist and where are we headed? But how are the afterlife and our living reality somehow interrelated? Okay. Uh, as I said, uh, once you uh, once you've passed on and you, and you go to the afterlife, you, you evaluate the pre your previous life and how you behaved. And uh, you do a lot of studying and, and things like that. And you meet with the various souls who are experts in different areas. And you have a spirit guide, well, at least one spirit guide who advises you. And this council of elders that I mentioned and so forth. And most of your efforts are, are really directed towards uh, analyzing how you behaved and planning your next life. Uh, one interesting aspect of the model the Newton model is that we have a lot of input as souls into what our next life will be. I mean, we, we get to uh, pick uh, specific details. So, you know, am I going to be born male or female? Will I be born to a, you know, a, a family that's, uh, you know, financially sound and, and non-dysfunctional? Or, you know, will, will, will it be the opposite? Will I have talents? You know, will I be attractive? Uh, you know, will I be wealthy? And so forth and so on. Uh, we have a lot of say in, in, in the type of life we move into. It's not forced upon us and it's not arbitrary, but we're supposed to pick our life circumstances for our next life so that they help us to address the issues, the karmic issues in which we are weak. And it seems like most of us do. You know, as, as distasteful as it is sometimes, we, we know the importance of it and we do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, – uh, oops, I'm sorry. No, I, that's okay. I, Understood. I, I, Understood. Lost your, no, I lost your question. What was the question again? Uh, no, no, no. You answered well, the question. Said, no, no. You said, how are they interrelated? No, if I, yes. I say more than that? I'm sorry. I got all tra Yeah, so the, the reason why they're interrelated is that in order for whoever governs the afterlife to present us with a life situation that gives us circumstances and people and situations to for us to address our karmic issues, uh, they have to design a lifetime and a setting for that to happen. And that setting, obviously, is the Earth and our Earth lives here. And it occurred to me when, when I explored the scientific, excuse me, the scientific aspect of the nature of reality. Like you said, we'll get into that later. 
uh, what we're going to see when we get into that is that there is some very powerful scientific evidence that our reality here is, is a hologram or it's holographic, which is very unreal, non-material. And when I, when I realized that in my research, I said, it sounds like what's happening here is that we're living in a virtual reality, a, a life simulation. And I think it, it is that. I think a it's matrix. a matrix. Yeah, a matrix, exactly. And it's not really real in the way we think it's real. It's an artificial simulation that's been created and designed precisely to give us the experiences and the circumstances we need to address our karmic issues. And I think that's the interconnection between the two. You know, it's not like we're just thrown here and this is a physical reality. And, you know, everything is random, as science says, and we just kind of have to deal with it the best way we can. It's all by design. And it's designed with very specific intentions in mind. And uh, it's like the analogy I make in the book is uh, someone learning to be a pilot, you know, a commercial airline pilot or a military fighter pilot. They don't jump in an airplane and start flying around. The first thing they do is they get into a flight simulator where everything is simulated. It's extremely realistic. But the fact is, it's not real. And if they crash, no one is hurt. Is hurt. No harm is done. And until they learn it well enough to move into the real thing. And I think that's what we have here. Because one of the odd things I found about uh, the afterlife model is that when we cross over, uh, nobody seems terribly upset by the bad things we did, even if they're horrendous things. As I said, there's no judgment. You know, there's no animosity. There's no you know uh, yelling or you know punishment at all. And uh, I mean, I mean, I think that's good on a spiritual level. It's a very positive thing. But on the other hand, you, you have to wonder: Gee, aren't people accountable? You know, what if you really did horrific things to people in this life? You know, it, it seems kind of uh, they they seem to take it you know very lightly over there. And I started to think that the reason why they take it lightly is because they know that it's not real that you've just been put into this artificial holographic simulation that they created and designed precisely to train you spiritually the way pilots are trained in a flight simulator. And I think that's the connection. And when we, when we explore the nature of reality, we'll see that it, you know, all the evidence seems to support the fact that it is a hologram. It's not material. It's not solid. Uh, and it's not random. And, uh, you know, once you connect that knowledge with the afterlife model that Newton developed, the two go hand in hand wonderfully. You could see that it's you know it's a it's a, a joint uh, enterprise. Well, at least that's my opinion of it. Well, I'm glad you're mentioning karmic said or karmic uh, responses because that's our, our next question. But before that, I, I'm thinking of the holographic universe or, or a Truman Show set, if you will. And this is mm -hmm. why we sometimes wonder what's beyond the set. And I heard someone the other day say, "Imagine if I threw a piece of chalk." and smashed it on the chalkboard. And all of a sudden, the word God appeared. Would you believe it? So why should we believe that a Big Bang would create the universe with all the beauty that surrounds us? Right, right. The Big Bang itself, I address that in the book too. Uh, I, I think that's probably the most preposterous scientific theory I've ever heard. Uh, the way I presented it, and I got the idea from Terence McKenna, was uh, because what, the, what science is... Uh, explanation of the Big Bang is that uh, there was this infinitely small thing, which they call a singularity. And uh, before the singularity, the physicists cannot say what existed. There was this one infinitely small thing, which was this singularity. And think about it. When you say infinitely small, what you're really saying is non-existent, because no matter how small you get, infinitely small is smaller than that still. So there's this virtually non-existent thing. And out of this, the entire universe came about. They don't provide any explanation why it happened, how it happened. 
it's, it's utterly preposterous. What they say is that everything came from nothing in an instant for no reason. And that's, that's even more preposterous than some religious doctrines. It's, there's nothing scientific about that at all. And yet that's, that's, uh, you know, that's what they say. You know, McKenna said that science says, give us one free miracle and we'll take it from there. And that's what they're asking for because that's as miraculous a, a theory as I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and, and it's interesting too how they play with language. Uh, this idea of a singularity, I can almost imagine the scientists, you know, sitting around coming up with this theory and saying, gee, we, we can't tell people that everything came from nothing. It makes no sense. And I could, I could picture one guy saying, well, you know what? We won't call it nothing. We'll call it a singularity. Sounds very, you know, formal and very scientific. It means nothing because it's infinitely small. Find but, me, uh, find me something physical in this yes. planet alone that comes from nothing. Yeah, I know. Right? It's, it's, never mind the entire universe, right? The right. entire universe is supposed to have sprung from nothing. So they play with the language the way, you know, the way politicians do. You know, when a politician says, I misspoke, you know, they, they lie. You lie. Yeah. You didn't miss. And, and the scientists are doing the same thing. We'll call it a singularity. Sounds very, you know, very official, very scientific. So they come up with this preposterous theory. And I agree with you. It's, it's you know, the, the thought that, like you said, anything came from nothing. Never mind everything is, is the most ridiculous thing in the world. So, they, so they, there has to be a reason for this and and uh, it has to be a really good reason to me I, you know the randomness i mean science often falls back on randomness uh, darwin's theory and so forth and i i find that another preposterous thing from a scientific perspective you know einstein said god doesn't play dice with the universe and i kind of suspect that's true too you see all of this structure all of this order all of this beauty uh you know that this all evolved out of random happenstance is ridiculous to me you know it was created by something and you know you don't need i don't think you need a religious um god idea to explain this you know to, to me god is a very scientific idea you know i think of god in a much more scientific way than i do in a religious way uh but something created this and i think it created it for a very important reason and i can't think of a more important reason than to help souls advance spiritually and i understand why certain religions including the ones that we used to to subscribe to have God as this man with a big beard yeah. and a cane sitting on top of a mountain judging us. But anyway, that's a different topic. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, let's begin with karma. Is there a connection between karma, reincarnation, and the afterlife? Yes. Yeah. Very profound connection. Uh, when we, however, we, when, the way we behave in a given lifetime on earth generates what is called karma. And it's often referred to as good karma or bad karma. Uh, if you do things, if you do good things, you generate good karma. And if you do horrible things, you generate bad karma. And uh, basically, it's it's uh, it, the karma is a reflection of your behavior and how you conducted yourself in a given lifetime. And what you have to do is you have to balance that karma out. And it's very important again to realize that it's, it is a, a system of balance. It's not punishment. People often fall into the trap of thinking that if you have bad karma. And you come back in another lifetime and face uh, difficult situations to address that karma. You're being punished for the bad things you did. And that's not what the system is about. It's, it's about balance. Or as we said before, learning. You learn from going through a difficult experience. And by learning it that way, you won't do it again. At least that's the idea. Uh, again, I'm sure you've had the experience. I have had it when you're young and, and you're a child and, you know, you haven't developed spiritually yet. Uh, you know, you, you'll you might be cruel to someone, you know, and you don't, you don't feel any remorse or, or any anguish about the fact that you severely hurt someone's feelings by, you know, calling them names or pointing out something about them that they're ashamed of or whatever. But if weeks later someone does it to you, all of a sudden it clicks and now you appreciate 
how bad the thing was that you did to the other person. It's only when we're on the receiving end that we often fully apprehend the seriousness of doing bad things. And that's what the karmic thing is about. You do bad things in one lifetime, you generate this negative karma, you go to the afterlife, now you learn about it, you study it, you realize what you did wrong, and then you start to make plans. How can I correct this? What can I arrange in my next lifetime so that I will have experiences that will stop me from doing this in the future? That's the idea. And then you do, as I say, a lifetime is created for you with your input uh, to give you experiences that exactly address those issues. And hopefully, by being on the receiving end in that next lifetime, you'll, you will learn the lesson. You'll realize how bad it was uh, to do those things. And when you come around the next time, you won't do it. And that means that's one more bad thing you've erased from your karmic slate. And the idea is ultimately, if you can get rid of all of them, you've achieved spiritual perfection and you get out of the karmic loop and you move on to whatever else awaits us uh, in the spirit realm, some higher level of spiritual existence. Well, the, this school we call Earth is come, becoming somewhat populated, I think. Uh, the overpopulation may be a myth, but if you look back 100, 200, 300 years ago, there were just you know maybe a few millions on the planet, and now we have, according to, to statistics, 7 billion. And this is a question that I've always asked people in, in research like researchers like you, but I've never been fully satisfied with the answer. So I wonder if you can at least speculate. If we had, say, 500 million people on the planet, say, 500 years ago, and now we have 7 billion, where did those souls come from? Okay, uh, I don't know that this was addressed in Michael Newton's book, so I'm going to be speaking strictly from my, my own. Uh, sure conjecture here. Uh, one thing that is mentioned in his book, and all the other researchers as well, I mentioned Newton, but they all, like I said, they all correspond together, is that uh, this is not the only place that souls go to. There, there are many, 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 many planets uh, that souls can incarnate to. One thing that pretty much every soul that I've read about is in agreement about is that the Earth experience is the worst. They, they say this is hell. There is no, there is no hell or in the sense purgatory. of- purgatory. Yeah, or at least purgatory. Yeah, but they actually say it's hell. They say this is about as bad as it gets. It's like Navy SEAL training, you know, for spirits, uh, for souls, <laughs> right. you know. It's about as tough as it gets. Like, uh, you know, if you get through this, you you know, you've learned a lot. And, it, and when you hear that very often, uh, you know, in these books, they'll uh, – under hypnotic regression, the people will describe lifetimes on these other planets. And they're beautiful. Some of them are water worlds and the people exist as porpoise-like creatures. Everything is pleasant. There's none of the horrible things we experience here. So I think that it's possible that – uh, there are huge numbers of souls and they're, you know, scattered about in all these different, uh, situations on all these different planets. Uh, and, uh, so I don't think there's a shortage of souls, you know, to, 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 uh, uh, fill the, the growing population of this planet. That, that's my guess. I, I don't know if that's, you know, that's the actual answer. I'll give you another thing, a, 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 an interesting take on it. This is my son's opinion. My, my son's an adult. He's, he's a scientist, actually. He's a molecular biologist. And we talk about this a lot. And he's a very open-minded scientist. So he does believe in a lot of this. And he came up with a theory, which I, I don't fully agree with yet, but, it, but it's interesting. And I, and I definitely give it credence. He thinks that uh, the number of human beings on Earth now, because of the huge population that you point out, has exceeded the number of souls that are available. And he thinks the reason why we're in such deep trouble is that there are a lot soulless. of people who are soulless. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, uh, politicians and bankers and so forth, you know, and, you know, there's just, <laughs> there's no soul there at all, you know, and I have my own theory on that, which, which I'd like to get into at some point, you know, uh, and it's kind of similar to his, although not exactly the same. He may be but, onto something. Sometimes I, I, I look at people, I look at a child, a five-year-old, you look at their eyes and yes. you know that's an old soul, but then you look at a 50-year-old and you look at their eyes and it's almost like a deer in the headlights, totally yeah. soulless person. Right. Right. Well, Mel, actually, can I get into another topic now that relates yes, to this sure. while I'm thinking about it? Uh, Please do. Another, another thing that comes from Newton's model of the afterlife is that, and this is another thing that bothered me. I have a chapter in the book which you saw called Elephants in the Room. There's a few things about the model that disturb me, although I think there are answers and explanations for them. But one of them is that, and this is, this is something that's come up with many, many of his people. When the human soul goes into the fetus in the mother's womb before birth, there's already an existing personality there. And, and the human soul is supposed to gain control of that personality. And when I first read that, it struck me as being akin to spiritual rape. And I was thinking to myself, what right do we have as souls to go, you know, uh, dominate this existing personality? You know, isn't that personality, uh, uh, doesn't it have a right to freedom, you know? And it really disturbed me. I just found that to be an ugly aspect of, of the whole model. But in any event, what the people tell Newton when they're under hypnosis is that that existing personality uh, has more baser instincts, you know, more of the, the despicable uh, characteristics we associate with people. And the soul comes into the, uh, the equation with all of the good qualities, you know, love and kindness and, and so forth and compassion. And the idea is the soul has to get control of that existing personality so that it can dominate it with these, these positive uh, characteristics. My theory, and again, this is not in Newton's book. This is an original theory with me. My theory about evil in the world is not that there are uh, 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 bodies running around with no souls in them, but rather what I think happens is certain souls cannot gain control over that existing personality. They just don't have the ability to do that. So therefore, uh, after the soul goes into the fetus, it loses the battle, if you will, in, in trying to gain control. And that exist existing personality is what gains control instead. And then I think either one of two things happens. It either expels the soul, which would be like a reverse exorcism. Instead of expelling the evil entity, it expels the good entity, or it just subjugates the soul and it rises to dominance. And I think that's what's happening because several of Newton's uh, people do mention – some of them have said they've had, they had difficulty gaining control over the existing personality. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if there are cases where control is lost completely. Uh, so, so I have a feeling that's what's going on because like I said, it sounds like there are many, many, many souls. I don't think there's a shortage of souls, but I think what's happening is, uh, some souls lose the battle. And once that existing personality gets control, it just pursues, you know, all of the materialistic pleasures, power, greed, sex, and so forth. And, and I think that to carry my theory further, I think that's, uh, that's the explanation for, uh, what David Icke refers to as the reptilian entities and the archons. You know, all these, uh, you know, demonic things that we see out there. I, I suspect that the, uh, the great spiritual battle is occurring within each of us, and it's between the soul and the existing personality. And that existing personality is, I, I don't know if it's evil, but I think its very nature is base. And uh, if it's left to, on it to its own devices, it manifests as, you know, bankers and politicians and so forth. And, and if we get control of it, then, you know, you have a better situation. And uh, uh, what I suspect is that uh, enough people with that, you know, with that personality, that negative personality where the soul was suppressed or expelled, uh, 
having no scruples at all, no moral you know, control, they pursue power because that's what that kind of personality wants. It's an ego-driven thing. And once they get in positions of power, they start to manipulate society in the way we see, you know, what, what we see in media and government and so forth, so that they encourage this in the other souls. And I, and I think what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, a, a losing battle between the, the soul and the existing personality, you know, being, uh, you know, uh, encouraged by design by the, uh, the bad souls or, or the bad entities that are in positions of power. So I think it really is, you know, there's always been talk going back for millennia of a, you know, a war in heaven and hell and all that. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's happening up in the sky with angels and so forth, you know, and demons. And I, I think it's happening right here inside each one of us. And, you know, we have to fight that battle and we have to realize this battle is going on. Most of us aren't even aware of the battle. Okay, and that's another reason I wrote the book. You know, be aware there's this battle going on. It's, it's happening inside you and me and everybody else. And, you know, we fight the battle ourselves. You know, we don't, we don't need help from anybody else. I don't know that we could get help from anybody else other than you know becoming cognizant of what's going on something i point out in the book is that everybody who comes back from a near-death experience or from the afterlife hypnosis says that the two most important things we're supposed to be doing in this earthly life are loving everyone and gaining as much knowledge as we can and when i first read that the love thing was a no-brainer i said of course but i said gaining knowledge yeah, i'm surprised but, but I realize now what it is. If, if it's this kind of knowledge. You know, it's this knowledge about the afterlife and about what reality is really about and the cohesion or the correspondence between the afterlife and reality. If you understand where we come from, why we're here, and how the system works and how the reality works, you can successfully fight that battle. And if each one of us wins that battle, the whole environment changes. The whole world changes. The paradigms change. And I think that's the solution. As I, you know, in the beginning, I mentioned to you, uh, I was looking for a solution to the, you know, the ills of the world. I think that's the solution. I think that's it right there. You know, learn well, about this. And believe me, I know we're fighting a war for truth, at least a war for truth. Yeah. And we're right in the middle of it. But speaking of all of this, it makes me wonder, do souls co-opt a pre-existing human personality or are they shaped by the physical world, by the environment? Well, I, I think it's both. I mean, I, according to, the, again, Newton's people, they definitely co-opt an existing personality. That, that seems to be unanimous among the people he speaks to. So I take that as being true. Uh, but I think we also are, are shaped by the environment. You know, it's the nurture, nature-nurture thing. I think that, that applies spiritually as well as it does genetically. Uh, you know, there's, there's the, there's the uh, nature there's the, the, the nature part that you know, we come here as souls with certain, you know, predispositions. Uh, but, you know, we are nurtured by our environment. And I think that's why uh, these, uh, you know, these uh, negative entities have gained control of all the uh, mechanisms of power in our society, because they want to, you know, uh, tip the scale in their favor. And, and I think they, they know they can do it because they can affect, uh, you know, individuals. Because I think this battle between the the soul and the pre-existing personality is an ongoing battle. I don't I don't think it's resolved in the womb. I think it's an ongoing battle. You know, remember, you know, I, I'm sure you saw this when you're growing up as a kid. I don't see it much anymore. But they used to always have this image of uh, someone with an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder, oh, yeah. and, and each one was Even speaking cartoons. into the yeah, and they were speaking into the ear. And the idea was that, like, you've got two aspects of your personality, you know, one telling you to do good things and one telling you to do bad things. Well, I think that's real. I think that came from what actually exists. I think we, we have our soul in us, and that soul is, you know, at odds with the existing personality. And like I said, they're in a constant uh, battle for supremacy. And, you know, the battle, I think you, you, that battle alone is difficult for us. But once we have these outside influences that you mentioned, 
you know, trying to steer us uh, one way or the other, and most of them are steering us to the negative now, uh, it's a difficult battle. You know, it's a, it's a really difficult battle. That's why, you know, turning off the TV and, you know, not watching the Kardashians or Jerry Springer and not, you know, listening to all this horrible music is important to spiritual development because those things are pushing you in the other way and they're feeding and empowering the existing personality, which is the negative aspect. And I do believe that as that thing gets fueled by all this stuff, it gets stronger. And as it gets stronger, it has a better chance of winning the battle. So, yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I think uh, the external environmental factors play a big role in this ongoing battle. If the afterlife is true, then as we were talking about, then one must consider that other lives existed prior to this one. Then why do we have to go through past life hypnotic regression in order to find out what happened and our consciousness, our conscious mind forgets those experiences. That's something that's always possible. If this is a test, if this is a school, and we're, we need to learn a lesson, why do we have to forget the next time? I know that bothered me too, and it still bothers me to a certain extent. Uh, but, but I think we wouldn't, let me see if I can word this properly. Um, what is the uh, point of forgetting is what I'm saying. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. There's an imposed amnesia when we're born. And I, I think right. the reason is that uh, our reactions to the circumstances and situations that we're presented with to address our karmic issues would not be honest and would not be um, um, genuine because we would know a little bit about the game. And, and you know, we, we, uh, but we, we would know it in a way that I think we're not supposed to know. I, I think, you know, the, the effect has to be um, – I think it's kind of like, you know how your parents told you a lot of things uh, when you were growing up? <clears throat> that they know they knew was nonsense, but you know we weren't sophisticated as children to, to know any better. So we believed it because it was our parents telling us, and it was constructive. You know, it, it it was it was important for us at that time in our development to think that the things they were telling us were true because it helped mold our personality. When we became older and more sophisticated and more mature, we looked back and realized, well, what nonsense they fed us. But but we could nevertheless realize, you know, it was important for them to make believe it was true. You know. Because uh, we needed that. We were, we were, we were unsophisticated and, and we only would react in the proper way if we believed in the truth of that, even though it was fake. And I think that's what's going on here. You know, we're unsophisticated as souls, depending upon what level of advancement we're in, uh, you know, and we're immature. And I think uh, we need to go into these circumstances not knowing the whole picture. I think our reactions have to be genuine and have to be honest. Uh, without any any realization because you know it's like the thing of you know um, are, you, are you doing it because you know you're afraid you're going to be punished or you're doing it because you know it's right there, there was a politician i can't remember his name and he said character is if you're alone in a room and no one's watching and you know no one's watching and you still do the right thing strictly because you know it's the right thing to do and i think that's what this is about we have to react to our karmic situations in the right way, only because we know it's the right thing to do, not because we're afraid of, you know, uh, being punished or because, we, you know, we want to accelerate our spiritual advancements because we want to get out of this mess and move into something better. I think we're put in that amnesic situation because, you know, we, we shouldn't know the big picture. You know, are you going to do the right thing now in this situation because you know it's the right thing to do, period? And, and, and that's, my, that's my take on it. Now, is evidence for the afterlife the near-death experience, is that the best that we can offer? No, there's actually uh, there's a man named Ian Stevenson. And um, 
he uh this is this goes in line with reincarnation now uh he did a lot of study on what's called childhood uh past life memories one of the uh one of the complaints about the hypnotic regression by skeptics is they say that uh you know, the, the information that comes out of hypnosis is not valid. I, I disagree with that. We can go into my reasons later. But uh, that's one of the arguments. Uh, Ian Stevenson did not use hypnosis. He, he dealt with very young children. And what it seems to be is that uh, that amnesic thing that you just brought up and that we were talking about uh, doesn't seem to really take solid hold until we're older. When we're children, it's still weak. And we can have spontaneous conscious recall of past life uh, memories, at least sporadic. And a lot of children apparently have that. And that's what Ian Stevenson stu studied. And he studied thousands of these. And he had uh, a colleague of his has, has picked up, you know, uh, his work. And what he found were many, many, many cases of children who just started talking about another lifetime as an adult to their parents. And initially the parents, you know, shrugged it off as being fantasy or, you know, delusions. Uh, but some of the things the kids said disturbed them. You know, they said like, you know, when I was married or my wife or, you know, they talk about smoking and drinking alcohol. These were five-year-old children. And the parents started to wonder, and they would have very specific information, names, places, and so forth. And some of these parents uh, were in a position where uh, they got enough information from their child that they could locate uh, the place where the child said they had lived in this past life. And in, in many cases, it wasn't too far away, maybe 100 miles away or so forth. And the parents would go there with the child and investigate. And sure enough, they would find the family that this child claimed to be a member of. And the child would know names of all the people there, no nicknames, pet names. Uh, they knew locations of things near the home, um, all kinds of details that there was no way in the world the child could know. And there are countless cases of this. Uh, so I think Ian Stevenson's work makes a very, very powerful case for the, uh, the truth of reincarnation. So you've got the near-death experience and uh, something we didn't address, but past life, what well, we talked about a little bit, past life regressive hypnosis, making the case for the soul and the afterlife. And then you've got the work of Ian Stevenson making the case for reincarnation. Um, there was a case I brought up in the book, too. It wasn't from Ian Stevenson's work, but it's on the internet. Uh, there's uh, some video on it. It was on a news show of a boy, a young boy, who uh, started to claim that he was uh, that he, he crashed in an airplane in a, in, a, in a war situation. And his parents started to question him, and he gave very specific details. And it came about that <clears throat> he was saying that he was a uh, pilot uh, in an American military aircraft in World War II, and then he was shot down and died crashing into the ocean. And he gave the name of the ship. It was the Natomo, and that it happened in the Pacific, and a lot of other details. And what the parents did was they, and he knew his name too. They looked it up, and sure enough, there was a ship with that name. Um, there was a soldier with the name that he claimed to have, and uh, they found veterans who were still alive uh, from that ship. And he knew their names. He recognized them. He got the the boy who was very young got all emotionally. Uh, upset when uh, they brought him to the location where the plane went down uh, every was it was it hawaii i think so i think he was uh, fighting the japanese i believe okay all right or around the, an area in the pacific it was definitely in the pacific yes it was the japanese and it was in the pacific and i mean if you look at the details and then i encourage your listeners to go look it up on on the internet i believe the boy's name was james leininger uh it's, I can't see anybody making an argument against this, any, you know, any skeptic argument that would discount this. And again, his case is not unique by any stretch of the imagination. And all of this is, again, no hypnosis involved. This is just spontaneous recall on the part of these very young children. So uh, there definitely does seem to be uh, truth to reincarnation. Yeah. 
Well, I have to ask you this. I will play devil's advocate for a moment, so please bear with me. Sure. Sometimes people get into an accident and our bodies are in shock in order to reduce reduce the pain. What if what people experience during a near-death experience is a release of chemicals by our brain in order to reduce the trauma? And that is why people see what they deem to be relatives or religious characters. Catholics see saints or Jesus. Muslims may see Muhammad or Allah, etc. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Uh, I think in some cases that probably is what's happening, but uh, there are many cases of near-death experiences where uh, the brain was flatlined. The EEG was flat. Uh, I I mentioned two specific cases in my book. Uh, One is uh, probably the most famous near-death experience case, Pam Reynolds. Uh, She was a singer. She had to undergo a very serious and dangerous brain surgery. And as part of the the surgical prep, uh, they drained the blood from her brain. They reduced her body temperature to 60 degrees. Her heart was stopped so that it wouldn't pump any blood. Uh, her eyes were taped shut and uh, plugs were put in her ears. And not only were her ears plugged, but the plugs made a clicking sound so that the, uh, the, the medical personnel could monitor her brain and make sure there was no brain activity at all. So there was nothing going on in this woman at all. Her heart wasn't beating. Her brain was completely flat. There was no brain activity at all. And any Uh, mental activity, whether it's dreams, hallucinations, fantasies, all of that requires brain activity. And yet she had a near-death experience. She saw a deceased uncle. She she, uh, had the out-of-body experience where she uh, rose out of her body and observed the the activities of the medical personnel. She described them and they were later proved to be accurate. And there are other people as well. Uh, The other case I mentioned was uh, even Alexander, a a neuroscientist, excuse me, a neurosurgeon, which is great in and of itself because this guy is a brain doctor. Uh, who better to you know assess something like this than someone who's in that field? And he uh, got spinal meningitis and was in a coma for seven days. Prior to this, he was a complete skeptic about spirituality, the afterlife, near-death experiences. You know, he was a scientist through and through, and he freely admits it. And um, he was in a coma for seven days. He says, as as a neurosurgeon, uh, that his situation with spinal meningitis was about as close to death as you can be. It was, you know, it was, it, nothing was working. He said the part of the brain that would be responsible for fantasies and delusions and so forth was completely non-functioning. And yet he had a very elaborate uh, uh, near-death experience. So powerful that he came out of it, his skepticism was erased. He completely believes in an afterlife and a soul now. He even created an organization to study it. I mean, this guy was greatly moved by his experience. And again, these cases are not unique. So, so this there is are a enough- scientist. Yes, a sci- uh, yeah, a brain surgeon. You know, I mean, the brain is his field of specialization. If, if he even says, if there's anybody who's, you know, a more uh, who's most uh, uh, qualified to assess this thing, not only from the experiential level of being the person who had the near death experience, but from a professional, scientific, and medical position, it's him. You know, he, he, you know, and I think it happened to him for a reason. I think he suspects that too. He seems to say that he called it the perfect storm of near death experiences because it happened to a guy who, you know, was a skeptic and who knows everything there is to know about the brain and he says there's no way that could have been a fantasy a delusion you know or anything else there's just no way his brain could have created something he believes he went to another realm and uh, like i said there are there are many cases like this so uh you know the skeptics come up with these uh, these uh, these arguments that uh, you know the person overheard something you know uh and their their brain then created a scenario based on whatever they overheard well again these people's brains aren't working so you know that, that's out you know pam reynolds had earplugs that were clicking she couldn't hear anything uh they come up with other scenarios um one of the uh researchers in the field 
Jeffrey Long, I think it was, said that uh, for every point that uh, that the you know near death experience researchers uh, bring up as an argument, you know, to support the premise of the near death experience, the skeptics come up with a counter argument, but they have to come up with a different individual counter argument for every point. And he says, if if you have to do that, then you don't have a theory. You have to come up with one theory that addresses everything. You can you know you can come up with a theory that has you know fifteen different counter arguments. So so their position is very weak. They they really have not disproved this at all. And this is the part that puzzles me when when someone, for example, the story of Greg Braden, who's uh, of course a huge follower of uh, Doctor uh, Moody, but uh, you know when someone floats out of their bodies and, and sees and hears and even tells doctors what they said during the operation or the resuscitation process. Right, right. Yeah, they describe sophisticated medical instruments that they've never seen before that weren't out, you know, when they were conscious in the operating room. The stuff was wheeled in after they were under anesthesia. Uh, they describe it in great detail, uh, you know, very accurately. Uh, they describe terminology that the medical people use that they never, you know, very, you know, very, uh, 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 precise uh, technical medical terminology that the average person is not aware of. Uh, they'll they describe furniture, uh, colors of things. You know, there's just no way they would know that. Um, they they uh, when they meet sometimes when they meet relatives on the other side, they meet deceased relatives that they were never aware of. In other words, they'll they'll come back after the near death experience, and they'll they'll let's say they're speaking to their mother and saying to their mother, "Gee, you know, I I, I saw." This, this person, you know, when I was uh, dead and, uh, you know, he said his name was Uncle Joe and he, you know, and they'll describe the person. and They, they weren't aware of an Uncle Joe, you know, uh, who looked like this. And then the mother says, yes, you know, I had a brother like that. But you never met him. And, you know, I never mentioned him to you. And everything they describe is exactly right. And this happens very frequently. Or they'll claim to have met a friend or a relative, you know, on the other side who the last they knew was alive. In other words, just before they had their near-death experience, they knew that person to be alive. While they were in coma or unconscious or whatever, it turns out that that person died and they didn't know it. So they come out of the near-death experience and they say, gee, it's odd. I met, you know, uh, my friend Bill, you know, and then someone tells them, gee, you know, while you were in a coma, Bill had a car accident, he died. So, you know, how, how does, how is this explained? There's, there's no way to explain this stuff other than the near-death experience. Yeah, exactly. And right. let, let's talk about the evidence for reincarnation. What have you been able to compile in your research? Well, like I said, I, I think the most powerful evidence is Ian Stevenson's work with the uh, the childhood past life memories, uh, because again, it doesn't rely on hypnosis. And I, and I, you know, I'm not. I I think hypnosis works. I think it's valid. But you know, for the sake of the skeptics, it doesn't rely on hypnosis. And there are thousands and thousands of cases. And, you know, they're able to confirm the claims that these children make, you know, with real, real circumstances and so forth. So, uh, you know, uh, I can't imagine any other explanation for that. I mean, a child comes, there's one, uh, let me see if I have the, uh, I think I'll I'll try to recall it from memory. Uh, There was a a girl in India, I forget what her name was, but uh, she started to make claims uh, about a past life. And it and, uh, turns out that where she claimed she lived previously was not that far away. I mean, it was about 100 miles away or something. So her parents took her there. And they found the house she described in the way she described it, the, you know, the, the physical details of the house. She said that there was a, I forget what it was now, a factory nearby or a school or something. But everything was exactly as she described. The family that lived there had the name she said. She described the, the relatives she described were there. Uh, she recognized people. When she went there in her current life, she recognized them by name without anybody introducing them. 
Uh, I believe they even put some, uh, you know, uh, some shills in there. They had some people who weren't family members, uh, and they may believe they were. And she said, no, no, that, that, I don't know who that is. Uh, she was able to, you know, she was accurate about every single thing about that life. And, and the person she had claimed to be did exist and died in the way she said that she died. Everything was, 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 uh, you know, uh, was proven true. So what other explanation could you provide other than reincarnation for, for a situation like that? I mean, I, I can't, I've never heard of a skeptic coming up with a, you know, a theory to explain that. And I can't imagine one myself. And I've tried. I mean, I said, you know, because again, I'm skeptical. You know, I don't just take this stuff on face value. And I can't come up with a, you know, a thesis to explain all of that, other than the fact that she did live that life. That there is such a thing as reincarnation. And again, her case is not unique. Absolutely. And here's another quote by Charles McKenna. This one says, "Quote: Science has become a tyrant." It's become the arbiter of all truth, as we mentioned before. That's ridiculous. Most of what's interesting doesn't fall under the purview of science, unquote. Now, let me ask you this. Are other lives recalled, the hypnosis, real? I think so. I underwent uh, past life hypnotic regression myself. And uh, let me, now we'll I discuss guess... that in segment two, yes. Oh, okay. oh, you want to say that? Okay, for segment two. All right. Uh, well, uh, I, I think they're real because um, people describe people who undergo this describe uh, historical details that they shouldn't know and probably wouldn't know, and they're proven accurate. Um, sometimes they exhibit something called xenoglossy, which is the ability to speak a language they have no knowledge of. For an accent syndrome, yes, yes, yeah. And even sometimes these languages are archaic, are archaic languages that have fallen out of use completely. And there are only a few experts, you know, in universities who know these languages. And yet when they're consulted, they say, yeah, that's right. The yeah, like Aramaic. Right, exactly. Things like that. Uh, you know, and uh, there's a woman named Helen Wambach who, who did, she approached it differently. You know, rather than the, uh, the individual cases that you usually see in the books on, on past life regression, which, you know, I love those. I, I, I never tire of those. And, you know, they uh, collectively make the case for, for the truth of the past life regression because, again, the, the, the facts that come out are accurate. She had the brilliant idea to uh, study this in the aggregate. She did statistical analysis of people who underwent past life regression. And what she was primarily looking for was uh, – are the, are the details they report consistent with historical fact uh, with regard to, say, demographic parameters? So she would take, I don't know how many, I forget, let's say 1,200 people who you know, underwent past life regression and look at the time periods they were regressed to. And then she would do a statistical analysis on what they reported, how many were male, how many were female, how many reported lives of poverty, uh, middle class lives, rich lives. Uh, you know, things of that nature. And then she would look at the actual statistics from that geographic location from that period in time. And the consistency was exact. You know, if, if 63% of the hypnotized people said they were poor, she looks at the historical record and 60 something percent of the actual people were poor. And if, you know, if, if 48% of the people uh, hypnotized said they were male, she looks at the historical record and that's what happens. And, and, you know, things of that nature, all of these demographic parameters were consistent. So you not only have the individual reportage of the people, you know, individually, uh, their details proving true, but you have this collective uh, scientific statistical study showing that even in the aggregate, what people are reporting is consistent with historical fact. And I think that makes a really powerful case for the truth of this. And of course, 
I don't think you would have written this book if you hadn't gone through, or maybe you would have, but you went through your own hypnosis to find out what your past lives were. And I want you to tell us in detail when we come back. But how can people buy the book? Go to your website and so on, John. Okay, the website is www.reality-revealed.com. Uh, the book is available in paperback and Kindle format at Amazon. Uh, if you go to Amazon, I think if you just put my name in, you'll find it. But if you go to my website, I have links there directly to the pages at Amazon where you can purchase the book. And there's a lot of material on the website um, about the book. There are several sample chapters. I even have uh, some uh, MP3 audio files uh, from my actual hypnosis sessions. Oh, wow. uh, two 10-minute files. Uh, one thing I always felt lacking when I would read the transcripts in the, in the books, and, you know, it's, it's very interesting, but I would always think, well, you know, I would love to hear this because you could sense that there's a lot of emotion that doesn't come through in the book. So I said, let me put that out there. I've never seen that before, and I thought that would be interesting. So so people can review uh, the details of the book uh, on the website before they decide to put up the money for it. The Afterlife and the True Nature of Reality, the quest for answers to the great questions of existence. So much more with John T. Minella when we come back. This is Mel Famergus, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy. 